When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Have you eaten more than you think you should? Every day. (laughs) (laughs) What percentage of Americans die too early because they've made bad decisions? Talk about irrationality for a little bit and how it affects our decision-making and why revenge is so important to us. (laughs) Hey, this is Dr. Phil, and you've tuned in to Fill in the Blanks. Today, I have a very fascinating guest on. I'm talking about none other than Dan Airely. James B. Duke, professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University and a founding member of the Center for Advanced Hindsight. He does research in behavioral economics on the irrational ways people behave described in really plain language. His immersive introduction to irrationality took place as he overcame injuries sustained in an explosion. Now, during a range of treatments in the burn department, he faced a variety of irrational behaviors that were immensely painful, yet persistent. He began researching ways to better deliver painful and unavoidable treatments to patients. Now, Airely became engrossed with the idea that we repeatedly and predictably make the wrong decisions in many aspects of our lives and that research could help change some of these patterns. Now, after using his knowledge of decision-making and behavioral economics to convince his girlfriend to marry him, Airely realized that understanding decision-making can help people in their daily lives. Irrationally yours, predictably irrational, the upside of irrationality, the honest truth about dishonesty the movie Dishonesty and the card game Irrational Game are his attempt to describe his research findings in non-academic terms so that more people will discover the excitement of behavioral economics and use some of the insights to enrich their own lives. Dan, how are you? Well, very, very mixed. uh, It's it's an amazing period for social science, um, tough period for humanity. And uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a very, very mixed period. I feel incredibly useful and also incredibly frustrated. Yes, I understand exactly what you mean because I share your feelings 100%. I'm facing the same issues here. And I understand that right now you're in Israel, correct? Yes, I've been. Um, I, I got to Israel in early March to help uh, with some of the aspects of the corona crisis. Uh, I was here for uh, almost half a year, then I went back to the States and I just came back. Oh, okay, great. Well, tell me, and I want this for our viewers and listeners, because I am very excited to talk to you because I am a huge fan, have been for a long time, as Marty Greenberg probably told you. So having a chance to sit down and talk shop with you is a real treat for me, and I want it to be for the viewers as well. So let me start by asking you, 
to introduce yourself and how you do introduce yourself. How do you describe yourself to people that are not in the field and don't really understand psychology and behavioral economics? So introduce yourself and how you tell people who you are and what you do. So if people see us, uh, then the first thing I would say is that uh, you probably see that I have half a beard and it's not because I lost a bet. Uh, many years <laughs> right. ago, I was badly, I was badly burned, uh, about 70% of my body, uh, including the right side of my face. So I have half a beard, but it's not by choice. It's, uh, it's the way the explosion happened. And, and this, this uh, history of, of being a burn patient for, for three years uh, was really my introduction into the field of social science and behavioral economics. And you know, when you're, when you're a patient in, in a bed for such a long time and experiencing so much pain, um, you, you observe lots of things about the world that you don't like. Uh, in my case, the worst was the question of bandage removal. So imagine that, that like me, 70% of your body was burned and somebody had to take the bandages off. What is the, the right way to do it? Do you want them to rip off the bandages quickly or take them off slowly. And uh, it turns out that my nurses and doctors uh, thought that the right approach was to rip the bandages quickly. That's yeah, what I, everybody's been taught, right? That's right, that's what they've been taught and that's what they thought, that was what their intuition was. And uh, I, <laughs> I didn't like that approach, you can imagine, and I tried to argue with them. And my first study when I left the hospital and started university was really about this question of how do you remove bandages from burn patients, slowly or fast? What, what creates worse and better and uh, be more and less uh, pain? And it turns out the nurses were wrong. The nurses thought that you wanted to minimize time, rip the bandages off quickly as possible, take maybe only 45 minutes uh, and, and get it over with. It turns out they were wrong that when we take an experience and we make it twice as long, we don't make it twice as painful. But when we play with the intensity, then we, we make it much worse. And for me, that's the essence of behavioral economics. Because their intuition was, their assumption was that duration and intensity were equal. Exactly. And you can just multiply the two. <laughs> let's, let's finish the duration. Uh, but, but the essence for me of behavioral economics is really questioning our assumptions about day-to-day -day life. You know, every, almost every action we make is based on some assumption. And uh, behavioral economics basically questions this assumption. Is this right? Is this the way to maximize our happiness? Is this the way to get the most out of life? Is this the way to negotiate with people? Is this the way to get people to help you out, uh, to motivate people? So that for me is the essence, is what really drives us and where our assumptions about what drives us are different than uh, reality. Yeah, and that's what I really want to talk about. You really get at the heart of this in such creative ways, and I've been excited to talk about this because the rationality and irrationality of decision-making is so outcome-determinative in people's everyday lives. It's outcome-determinative in what they have for lunch, where they shop, what they buy, but it's also outcome-determinative in terms of their lives, what the sum total of their lives are. And I've said to people that follow me many times that 
Since I was 12 years old, I have been fascinated with why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do. And I've always said, if you understand why people do what they do and don't do what they don't do, you have a huge edge in life in terms of managing your own life and getting other people to do the things that you would want to motivate them to do. You really break that down and get to the heart of it. And I believe that most people think they make decisions when, in fact, they're having decisions made for them by the advertising machine, the marketing machine, people that make forms. And I really want to get into that and talk about it because you've done such a creative job at breaking it down so people understand it. I don't know, maybe people say, why do you do that? Well, it's just because. It's the way it's (laughs) always been done. I've talked to people who will do something twice and say, that's just the way we've always done it. You've done it twice. What are you talking about? But they default to a comfort zone because they've done something once, twice, three times, and they have no idea why. It's just, that's just the way we've always done it. Why do we accept that? Yeah, so so you've basically kind of uh, captured, I think, the, the basic lesson of social science. And the basic lesson of social science is that when we, we make decisions, we think they come from us, but they often they come from the environment. And And the thing to understand is that the environment is not really designed to help us make better decisions. So imagine as a metaphor, a person walking down the street. Every coffee shop wants them to buy coffee and a donut. Every app on their phone wants them to spend time on that app right now. Right. So we we are walking around and other things in our environment want our time, our money and our attention. And who is there to fight for our long-term wishes? Uh, basically nobody. You know, if you, ask, if you ask the question of who cares about your long-term well-being, uh, maybe it's your significant other. Maybe if you believe in the government, you will say the government. But, but the reality is that most of life, we are surrounded by other entities that control the environment and therefore change our decisions. So think about something very simple, like you go to the supermarket. And maybe you prepare and you bring a shopping list and that's your plan of action. But the supermarket also has a plan and their plan is different than yours. And guess what? They control the environment. They decide what's at the eye level. They decide what's at the end of the aisle. And because of that, we end up making their decisions more often than we we would like. So, and, and you also mentioned this idea that it's not just about science, it's about our personal lives. And one of my hopes is that we would all become scientists of our own lives, right? We're all the architects of our homes, of our kitchens, of our desks. Uh, What are the things that we could do to change the environment to get better outcomes? So so the design of the environment is crucially crucially important. Um, And you you can even think about uh, uh, refrigerator. So, um, actually, can I, can I ask you a few a few personal questions? You bet. Go. Oh, okay. In the last month, uh, have you eaten more than you think you should? Every day. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally transparent. I'll tell Very you. Good. You want to know? Have you have you slept less than you think you should? Every night. <laughs> okay. um, have you in the last month have you texted while driving? Uh, that I don't do because I have a hard enough time as it is. <laughs> okay. Um, 
you know, we can talk about taking medications, we can talk about washing hands every time you leave the bathroom, we can talk about taking medications regularly, having safe sex, all of those things. And the reality is that when we look at those, we should all admit that we fail a lot. Yes. We fail a lot. And there was this very, very sad study that asked the question of how many people, what percentage of Americans die too early because they've made bad decisions. Um, and, and the results show that this number is increasing all the time. Uh, about 100 years ago, it was less than 10%. Now it's more than 40%. Wow. What, what because happened? Of bad, because dumber? of bad decisions. That's right. And, and the question is why? Are we becoming dumber? The answer is no. What is happening is that the environment is becoming better at tempting us. Thinking of, think about donuts. Donuts are really getting better. And, right. and what I mean by getting better is not that they're getting healthier, they're getting more tempting. Right. Facebook is becoming better. Our phones are becoming better at tempting us. Cigarettes, texting while driving. The reality is that the economy around us is an economy of temptation. And we fail, and we fail a lot. Well, one of the things that I've tried to communicate to people across time, and I'd like you to comment on this, I've said that the reason diets fail, for example, is that willpower is a myth, that it's fueled by emotion and emotions are fickle. So January 1st, we make that New Year's resolution. All right, we're going to lose 20 pounds. We're going to get out there and do all of these things. And so we get a new pair of jogging shoes and we put them on the front porch and the damn things just won't jog. <laughs> you, know, you get out there in the middle of February and they're still just sitting there. And I say, look, it's not willpower. You have to program your environment to support your goal. If you don't want to eat too much, if you don't want to eat the wrong foods, then clean up your environment. Set your environment up to support you when you don't feel like doing it. It's easy to do it when you're all pumped up. The hard time to do it is when you aren't emotionally up for it. That's when you need your environment program to support you. That's right. So so I... I'm with you, but so look, willpower is amazing for the people who have it. Like I, right. I, I had the opportunity to meet the Dalai Lama and he has lots of ideas about willpower. And I asked him to give me some of his monks for experiments and he wouldn't. Um, so I don't know how much willpower they have. But if we think about that level of willpower, I think these guys can do lots of things. But if you talk about regular people like us, uh, we just don't have that level of willpower and we can't count on that. That's what I say to people. Assume that's not you. <laughs> yes. When you talk about the willpower of those guys and the vow of silence and the monks and their commitment, assume that's not you <laughs> yes. working in New York or Dallas and in the busy day. Assume that's not you. So program your environment. Yes. And and that's that, that's really kind of the, the main lesson is that it's very hard to change people. And it's relatively easy to change the environment. And now, now willpower is important. I'll, 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 I'll tell you something that we just learned. But you know, if, if you woke up every morning uh, five miles away from home with your gym shorts and shoes, you'll at least walk home, right? There's no, there's no question about it. If you made an appointment to meet a friend to go for a run, you'll show up and go for a run. It's, it's those things that we need to architect. But I'll tell you something we just learned about willpower that uh, I think is incredibly important. 
So we did a study on a large group of people with diabetes. And we asked the question of what helps, and some people are better managing their diabetes, their A1C, and some people are worse at this. And we asked the question of what differentiates the people who are better at this from the people who are worse at this. And you could say, is it that they understand diabetes? No. Is it that they understand the side effects? No. Is it that they understand how to measure their blood glucose level? No. Is it that they're more motivated? No. Is it willpower? No. The only thing we found is what we call breakpoints. And breakpoint is the point in life where you're just fed up. You know, life is tough. Uh, you, you fight with your kids in the morning and try to get them to school, and then somebody tempts you with a cookie, and then your boss says something, and then there's YouTube, and you know, life kind of, the, the things accumulate, accumulate. And sometimes we're just fed up. And when we're fed up, what's the easiest, cheapest way to get some happiness? Unhealthy food. Right. And we found that that's the cycle of diabetes. And, and what I think it means is that self-control is not the, the mechanism for good behavior, as you said, but it is a danger for bad behavior because it's the failure of self-control. And, and these breakpoints and the time that people are just, just are miserable and look for quick happiness, those are the things that feed diabetes. And, and by the way, reaching these breakpoints is faster for people who have diabetes because we all have a busy life and we all have stress. But if you have a regular life plus diabetes, your life is extra stressful. You right. have to wake up in the morning and measure and run and measure and you have to eat certain things and don't eat. So, so the management of life is just much higher. So you, you're quicker to get to that level of frustration where you want something. So we have to worry about the failures of self-control because this is like you can die for a whole week and destroy it in one evening. The first page of a book never tells the full story. And those news alerts and headlines, like the ones we get on our phones, don't even scratch the surface of what the story is really all about. Stories are like people, multi-layered and complex. It takes some digging to find the truth, but when we find it, it can change our world. We like to dig. The news on Merritt Street, essential television. You know, what I found in working with people on weight control is that they do most of the damage with a very small group of foods in a very concentrated period of time during their week. They have impulse foods and vulnerable times. And if you can get them away from those foods and give them a competing habit for those vulnerable times, something that they're doing that's incompatible with ingesting these foods during those vulnerable times, that you can really help them sustain themselves, but you've got to recognize when are your vulnerable times and what are your most vulnerable foods. And being a type two diabetic, I've learned that across time. But I think what I've had the most fascination with is how you get people to recognize when they're not making these decisions for themselves, when they are being made for them. Advertising, for example, when you look at an ad by McDonald's or some of the fast food franchises that are out there, it's interesting to me how little of the time 
during the ad they spend showing their food and how much of the time during the ad they're showing acceptance, happiness, togetherness, joy, everybody being included in these restaurants. I've never seen one that looked like the one on television, but everybody in there is happy. They're together. They're selling joy, happiness, togetherness, and the food is almost added on to the end. They want you to feel good about the product and that sells the product. And I don't think people realize that their emotional strings are being pulled to get them to buy the product. It's not just the meat, cheese, and bread that they're selling. That's right. And, and uh, you know, the, the part of it is that is kind of uh, worrisome is that we imagine that you have two paths to convincing people to do something. One is based on reason and logic, and one is based on emotion. And then you say, which one is the easiest of the two? And it turns out emotion is easier to create. Right. So, so what we do is we, we, we take that path and we try to convince people with emotions about everything from you know, hamburgers to politics, just because it's easier. It's not what you would want people to do, but it's, but it's easier to do. And, and the other thing that, that you started with is the fact that we don't see it. And that's a fascinating thing, right? So you, you go to a buffet and you don't realize how the organization of the food is going to get you to overeat. Uh, you look at the refrigerator and you don't understand how that will change what you do. The reality is that for most decisions, uh, we're an autopilot. And then for many other decisions, defaults are incredibly important. So we feel that we make decisions, but the reality is that the choice architecture around us makes many of those decisions for us. But, but we are so good in telling ourselves stories. Uh, we're so good in telling ourselves stories that we, we tell them so quickly and then we co convince ourselves that we made that decision. So you go to, I don't know, you go to buy a TV, and they show you three TVs and they show you a huge one, a large one and a slightly smaller one. And you choose the middle one because that's often what we do is we choose the compromise. And you don't understand that if they showed you three other television, you would, you would choose the middle one as well. But right. once you chose it, you said, this was my choice. We're very, very good at acting based on the environment, but then convincing ourselves that we made the choice ourselves. Yeah. Let's talk about that default. I really want people to understand what you've discovered about this because you've discovered that when it gets to a complex decision, most people really will, rather than deal with the conflict of complexity, they will default to what they're being structured and funneled into a predetermined decision that the architect wants them to make. Give us some examples of that, if you will. Yeah. So first of all, let me kind of say kind of in general how I look at life. So when I, when I look at, at life and I, I try to make people make better decisions, I first look at friction and then I look at motivation. So I say, imagine that changing behavior is like sending a rocket to space. The first thing we want to do is to make that rocket as aerodynamic as possible. So it has the least resistance possible. 
And then the other thing you want to do is you want to add more fuel. You want to make it easier. You want to make it, have it more powerful. Okay, so friction and fuel uh, make the desired behavior easy. And then you want to add more motivation. And, and default is one of the ways to do it. So, so I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you an example from, from a study we did with a, an online pharmacy. Great. This online pharmacy, people signed up and, and they, uh, were, they started by buying branded medications, expenses brand, expensive branded medication. Let's say it was $20. It, it varied, but, but the average was $20. And they tried to switch people from branded medication to generics. So they wrote people a letter. And they said, please, please, please switch to generics. You will save money. We will save money. The world will be a better place. It will only cost you $5 a month. And they sent people those letters and almost nobody switched, less than 3%. So then they said, okay, let's go all out. And they tried something more extreme. And they sent people a letter and they said, currently your medication is $20 and branded. If you switch to generics, it will be free for a whole year. Free for a whole year. Amazing. Free for a whole year. And they expected lots of people to sign up. Only 10% of the people sign up. Really? At that point, they came to my office. And they said, you know, what's going on? And, and the reason they came to complain is that I wrote a couple of papers on the Allure Free. And in those papers, I showed that when you reduce the price of chocolate, let's say, from 13 cents to 1 cent, people buy a little bit more. But when it's go to zero, people get really excited. So they said, look, you wrote these papers on free. We were impressed. We tried free. You know, we got 10% instead of free, but we were expecting more. What's going on? And I told them, maybe it's friction. Maybe it's friction. They said, what do you mean? I said, think about what's happening to your customers. They have one option of doing nothing and stay with branded. And they have another option of doing something, move to generic, but it also involves an action. So this is what we call a confounded design. Two things are happening at the same time. It is branded versus generic, but it's also doing something versus doing nothing. I said, which one is it? Is it doing something or doing nothing? Or is it branded versus generic? Right? Do people really love branded? Or do people just really hate returning letters? So the first proposal I, I told them, I said, let's reverse the default. Let's send people the medication in three months and tell them, Next time we're reversing, we're, we're switching your medication. Next time you're going to get the generics. No need to worry. You don't need to do anything. You'll get generics. If you want to stay with branded, return the letter. That will be to switch the default, right? You're getting generics right. next time. So um, it turns out that's illegal. <laughs> it's illegal right. to switch medications like this on people. Um, so what the lawyers allowed us to do was to do what we call a forced choice is to send people a letter and say, you can choose when you return this letter, branded at $20 or generic at five. But if you don't return the letter, uh, you will not get your medication, will be forced to stop your delivery. So you see in the original design, uh, people could do nothing. Now they can't do nothing. They have to do something. And more than 80% of the people switched. So what does it mean? Does it mean that people like generic or branded? It means that people hate returning letters. You know, right. this whole equation, the real issue was the, the resistance to, to, to returning the letter. Now, 
it's not because people are stupid or lazy. It's because people are busy. The reality is that with the internet revolution, we all became much, much more busy. Right? There used to be a bank, you went to the bank teller, they did things. You used to go to book a vacation, you went to a travel agent, in half an hour you had a hotel and a car and a flight. Now we have to do everything ourselves and everything takes longer. And people are incredibly busy and stressed for time. So what happened is that the default is becoming more and more powerful because we're stressed for time, we don't have the energy to deal with anything. It seems like a reasonable suggestion and we just accept it. So that means, you know, that when other people give us offers, we need to think about defaults. But also when we set our own lives, we need to think about what defaults we want to have. Yeah, because defaults are in our lives much more than we're aware of, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, everything Absolutely. is set up for us and programming the environment. You talked about going to the store. People don't realize if something's in an aisle, it has X exposure. If something's in an end cap, it has five or 10 X exposure. You go to Walmart and they have Power Alley, which runs perpendicular to the aisles and you have to cross it to get to the checkout stand. And that's gold. If you can get your product in Power Alley, your sales go up exponentially. Yep. Everybody in the store has to walk past it. I've had my books in Power Alley many, many times, and it makes all the difference in the world. But that's programming. Yep. You know, People didn't go there seeking it out, but they can't get around it. And sure enough, they wind up taking it home. And, and it's, it's, but it's everywhere, as you said. So, you know, uh, I'm sure your life like mine is full of Zoom meetings. Oh, yeah. Uh, Zoom meetings are an hour. Who decided that they need to be an hour? Why, why not 43 minutes, right? And have time to, um, to go to the bathroom before meetings or, or do something. But, but, you know, when you start thinking about it this way, it's really bizarre. Like, you know, by, by the way, the whole division of a day into 24 hours we could have divided into 30. Why 24? Yeah. Right? But, but we decided, we accept it. We make meetings that are an hour or half an hour. And, and by the way, it's the software that is making it so easy to do it this way. So we accept lots of defaults. We don't, we don't think very deeply on them. And, and our life follows from, from there. I'll tell you a, a kind of... One of my saddest, not saddest, but you know, a story about me. And I'm, I'm right now, I'm, I'm at my mother's house in, in Israel, but uh, when I'm in my office at Duke, I have this desk that goes up and down um, electronically. No problem, it's not a lot of work, it's pushing a button, it goes up and down. What I discovered is that if I show up in the morning and the desk is at the top position, I stand and I work for an hour or two standing up. <laughs> if I come and it's at the low position, I sit, it never goes up. But for some reason, when I come in the morning, I'm, I don't have the energy to press the button and move Push it up. the button, right. So, so what I do is I press it the night before, right? I basically prepare my environment for the next, for the next day. But it's those kind of things. You know, have you ever wondered how can it be that all restaurants know exactly how much food we want to eat? We basically finish the food on our plate, or even when we pile food on, we finish it. We, we don't really think that, that deeply about what's in front of us. And, and by the way, it's just because we're busy. We have other things to do. 
So there's lots of stuff we don't focus on and we end up playing the game that was designed for us by our environment. Investors like you have a problem. Today, most portfolios only include stocks and bonds. While it's currently performing, it's a strategy that Goldman Sachs predicted in 2023 to underperform for the next decade. Luckily, our sponsor, Masterworks Advisors, focuses on a non-traditional alternative asset, helping over 15,000 investors diversify a portion of their overall portfolios with blue-chip post-war contemporary art. Over 60% of wealth managers surveyed by Deloitte have already integrated art into their wealth management offering. And by signing up at masterworks.com slash advisors with code free, you can talk to a registered investment advisor representative who deals exclusively with this alternative asset class. So schedule a free same-day advisory call with Masterworks Advisors just by going to masterworks.com slash advisors and using promo code free. That's masterworks.com slash advisors promo code free. This advertisement relates to the provision of advisory services by Masterworks Advisors LLC and is not intended to offer or solicit investment in any securities and is not investment advice. Masterworks Advisors is affiliated with Masterworks. Let's talk about irrationality. You talk, I think, in a very interesting way about how people, and it was true with your nurses, they fail to test their assumptions and intuitions in life, and it can lead to some really bad outcomes if we just take something at face value, assume our intuition is correct, we're unwilling to test our assumptions and intuitions. And if some of those are irrational, they can really create problems for us and other people. Talk about irrationality for a little bit and how it affects our decision-making and why revenge is so important to us. <laughs> okay, so so maybe the, the, the central reason why we are irrational is emotions. Right? Rationality is about making decisions, considering all options, thinking long-term. Right? So, so the, the standard kind of question is to say, imagine I gave you a choice. I would say, uh, Dr. Phil, in two years, I'll give you a choice between an apple cake, uh, sorry, chocolate cake. We'll give you chocolate cake um, uh, and, and an apple. Which one would you take? And when people say in two years, I'll take the apple, right? I'll be, I'll be, I'll make the healthy choice. And then I put the two of them in front of you, chocolate cake, oozing smell, you know, partially melting and the apple, all of a sudden the apple doesn't look as, as good. Doesn't look near as good, does it? <laughs> yeah. Because immediate gratification. Immediate gratification. And that, and that basically uh, kills our rationality, right? You could say, oh, I know that apples are better than chocolate cake, but at the moment, <laughs> it doesn't seem like that. So emotions are one thing that derails us. Like, you know, you say, I'm not going to text and drive, and then your phone vibrates, and you become a slightly different person, slightly more curious, and, and things go. So that's one. Another type, and of course there are many, but I'll just give you two examples. Another type is money. Money is just something that we're not naturally inclined to understand money. So um, consider, consider the following example. Uh, you're going to buy a pen. The pen is $15. And you're about to check out, and the cashier, who is a very nice person, says, look, you have a really nice smile, a really nice face. I have to tell you, there's a sister store to us, only four blocks down the street, and they're selling the same pen instead of for $15, for $7. If you want, walk to that other store. It's only four blocks away, beautiful day. 
If you, if you want to, to save those $8, go for it. And you ask this, you, you look at this decision, most people walk four blocks to save $8 in this case. Case number two, you're buying a jacket. It's an expensive jacket. It's $1,015. As you check out, the salesperson says, you know what? There's a sale. Our sister stores, only four blocks away, they're selling the same exact jacket instead of $1,015 for $1,007. It's only four blocks down the street. If you want, go ahead and get it. Now people say, I'm not going. Now, rationally, the question is, is it worthwhile for you to walk four blocks to save $8? The answer is yes or no, but it shouldn't matter what's the size of the purchase. Your bank account doesn't care where these $8 come from, but we make decisions in a relative way. So this is, for example, why if you're buying a car and the salesperson says, for only $500 more, you can increase the quality of your stereo. You say, only $500, what a bargain. If you went to buy a stereo for home, you wouldn't spend $500 right. on a stereo. Or this is why we feel differently using cash than using credit cards and all kinds of other things. So, so emotion are one example. And then having our psychological, our thinking mechanism not suit the environment that we've developed, like money, is another one. But, but I, I do want to mention something that we, we often use the term irrational in a, in a pejorative way, that it's bad. It's true in many cases it's bad, but not always. Uh, love is irrational. Uh, our generosity to each other. If you go to a city and you go to a restaurant and you'll never go there back, you shouldn't tip. Rationally speaking, of course. But we're not at all. Dr. Phil, if you came to my house for dinner, here's what you should do if you're rational. You should come and you can say, Dan, thank you very much for inviting me for dinner. Uh, I was going to spend $40 on a bottle of wine, but I don't know what wine you like. Red, white, new world, old world, California, France. So here's $40. Here's $40. Go ahead and buy yourself the best wine that you can with $40. Now, that's what every economist will tell you to do because it will maximize the value of money. Right? I, I know what wine I want and, and you don't. However, you giving me $40 is not going to improve our friendship in any way. Now, all of that is irrational, but in a good way. So there are some irrationalities that are derailing us. Temptation, lack of self-control, emotions, confusion about money. But there are some irrationalities, like investing in friendship and love and poetry, and, and voting and giving tips to people and gifts that are irrational in the in a formal economic sense, but it's what makes us human special. Well, talk about this. Taking the example you're talking about, about tipping someone, if you're never going back to that restaurant again, you're not forming a relationship with this person in an ongoing fashion. I travel a lot. I go places to do a news story that's really off the beaten path, and I'll never go back there again. It might be a small town in Georgia or Illinois. I'm going there to do the news story. Chance of ever returning there is very low. And I will tip a waiter because of how I feel about myself. Exactly. It has to do with my self-esteem, my self-worth. Some of the rationale for me is I have two sons that 
were young at one time working in these roles, things like that. I think, you know, if I had a child that was working in this, I would hope someone would be kind to them. So I'm kind to this person in hopes that it will multiply and carry forth. I feel better about myself if I am kind to other people. So it's not financially rational, but in terms of self-esteem and my own peace of mind, it's driven emotionally. That's right. So it's not rational, but it's good. So, so for example, when you describe that you are thinking about your, your sons and their role, that's empathy. And, and you know, uh, each of us depend on the experience we, we had in our lives. Some things we have more empathy for and some p- things we have less. Right. And, and, if you, and if you've walked in somebody's shoes or have seen something, you have more empathy. So, so two years ago, I, I went to, to be a waiter in the restaurant for a few days just to see what it feels like. And I've increased tipping since then, right? You understand the other side in a better way. Now, it's not rational. It's not like the rational thing would be, what do I get from it? Like, but so, so anyway, so, so there's lots of irrationalities that I would like to fix, but some of them, like human generosity, the fact that we care about each other, our tendency to trust each other, all of that is, 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 just, is just wonderful. So we, we have to kind of um, have a balance of, of what is beautiful about humanity and our irrationality and the fact that we spend uh, time on poetry and art and we trust other people and, we, and we're generous. And, and some of those things we want to increase. And then there are some mistakes that we want to decrease. Right. Now, the title of my master's thesis was Androgyny and Moral Judgment. And I was studying, obviously, whether there's a difference between males and females with regard to moral judgment. And so, as a result, I did this massive lit review on moral judgment. And this was probably before you were born. But I saw very clearly that with regard to cheating, stealing, people found it less repugnant to cheat the IRS, cheat an insurance company, steal something from a big store than they were to go down to the corner yard sale in their neighborhood and steal something from Mrs. Jenkins who lived on the corner. Yeah. Why yeah. is that? Okay. And and it's not and it's it's uh, not just with her but it's it's seeing the action. So so as you know, I've done lots of research on, on dishonesty for about 20 years. I thought that was a pretty good segue into your honesty work. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, yes. It was, it was lovely. Uh, um, so so here's, the, the, here's one basic way in which we test dishonesty. Uh, we give people a six-sided die, a regular die, and we say, please toss that die. And depending on what it comes up on, we'll pay you. If it comes on six, you'll get six dollars, five, five, four, four, and so on. But, but you can get paid based on the top side or the bottom, Pot, top or bottom. You decide, but don't tell us. So imagine I give you the die. I say decide top or bottom. You decided, yes, keep it in your mind. Don't tell me. And now roll the die. And people roll the die. And let's say it came with five on the bottom and two on the top. And now I say, okay, great. What did you pick, top or bottom? Now, if you picked bottom, you say the truth, bottom, and you get $5, five and five. If you pick top, you have a dilemma. 
Do you say the truth top and get only $2? Or do you say, no, I thought about the bottom. You lie and you, you get extra money. And we get people to play 20 times. And what we find is that people are extra lucky. <laughs> uh, of course, yeah. people are not extra lucky. They're, they're lying, right? You would expect them 50% of the time to pick the high side and 50% the low side, but they are extra lucky. They get correct the high side 13 times out of 20. Um, and now the question is, uh, what influences? When do people cheat more and when do people cheat less? And, and the, the, it ends up being a story about rationalization. And this is exactly what you said as well. It ends up a story about, can we tell a story of how we can both cheat and feel good about ourselves? So I'll give you an example. This was the funniest study I did. It was with a different paradigm. I used to own a vending machine. Uh, for experiments. And in this experiment, I set up the vending machine on the outside to say 75 cents per candy. But on the inside, I program it to zero. So you would oh, come okay. in, you would put money in the vending machine, you would press the button and you will get all your money back because everything is more than zero plus you get the candy. And I had a big sign that says, if something is wrong with this machine, please call this number. And this was my cell phone number so that I could See how many people called. So question number you f for you, Dr. Phil, uh, what percentage of people called? Oh, man, I'm guessing zero. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. <laughs> zero percent. Um, but here's a more difficult question. How many candies did people take? I say zero because based on your other research, they had to do something. Uh, there was friction. Well, they started with one. They started with one, right? They came to buy. So they, they found out that they got one candy and they got the money back. Now the question is, did they continue? Yeah. Did they empty the machine? <laughs> That's right. So, so basically what happened is that uh, the majority took three or four. Really? Nobody took five. Nobody took five. Wow. And, and, and I think it's because people said to themselves, like three or four you can justify. You can say... I remember another vending machine that took my money and didn't give me a candy. And this vending machine must be a close relative of that, of <laughs> yeah. that other vending machine. And I'm really just arranging my vending karma in this process. I'm not really stealing. If you take 10, that, that feels really bad. So what happened, what we're learning is that we cheat a little bit up to the level that we can justify. Now, if we say it's an evil organization, we justify more. If we say everybody else is doing it, we can justify more. So justification ends up being the mechanism uh, that allows us to cheat and feel good about ourselves. So if it's the IRS or an insurance company, which they consider adversarial, exactly. this is the enemy. I'm getting even. I'm not taking something. I'm getting money back that has been taken from me, they're justifying it like I'm just evening the playing field. Exactly. Next week on part two of what controls your decisions may shock you. Control is so important for resilience. And COVID has created lots of lack of control. Like it's kind of crazy. We don't decide if we can leave home or not, if our kids will go to school or not, if our job will be open or not. So trying to gain some control, I think is a really important exercise for these days. <laughs>